I was making a million dollars a year. We had about a third of the employees at the company making about $35,000 per year. In order to raise that third to 70,000, I had to lower my pay to 70,000. That story goes viral. 500 million interactions on social media with NBC's video becoming the most shared in network's history. The new kind of people that style themselves as capitalists, they don't believe in competition. They believe in using their money and their superior positions of power to stamp out competition. Either you're a zero, which means a non-billionaire, you don't matter. Or you're a one, which means you're a billionaire, you do matter. That's not what I took from the book when he said zero to one. That's an exact quote, so your reading skills. We're I back. know that. How do your employees trust you 100%? What we do is helping small businesses. Even if I do turn out to, you know, go to the dark side, as you say someday, like we'll all be protected. I think taxation is force. I don't think it's choice. We have been pushing millions of people into poverty with our system as set up to reward and not tax the people at the very top and instead tax the people at the bottom. My guest today did something a couple years ago that sent shockwaves through the debate for capitalism, socialism, minimum wage. Are we paying too much to people? Are we paying too little? Here's what he did. You may remember this story. I guarantee you high odds are against you not having seen his story. Dan Price is an entrepreneur running a successful business. He was making at the time $1.1 million a year income. One of his employees that was making $35,000 a year income gets pissed off at him, says, you are making too much money. You're not, it's not fair. Look what's going on. I can't even have a regular life. He can't sleep for three days, comes back, says, you know what? I'm going to pay everybody $70,000, including myself. That story goes viral into a tsunami 500 million interactions on social media with NBC's video becoming the most shared in network's history. Aside from that, most read New York Times article of the week, front page of Reddit for two days, front page of MSM, MSNBC, ABC, Mashable, trending article on Upworthy, BuzzFeed, Twitter for two days, Facebook. I can go on and on. He eventually got an offer to uh, uh, go have his own reality TV show with Mark Burnett, who's the same guy that did Apprentice with President Trump, to be the new Donald Trump on a show called Billion Dollar Startup. With that being said, my guest today, Dan Price. Dan, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. Thanks for having me. So I, I got to tell you, I actually uh, uh, love the fact that you did, did this. And let me explain to you why from the selfish reason. I'll tell you why from the selfish reason. I'm all about case studies. You know, when, when uh, you go to business school, I didn't go to business school, but I took a three week something that Harvard was doing. And I went there, we read through a hundred different case studies and it was great seeing here's what Sephora did. Here's what, you know, Ulta did. Here's what these guys, did. here's what that guy did. And it takes typically a few months, if not a few years to find out if that mark, you know, if that case study worked or not. And for you, you kind of taught us, you know, you were kind of watching to see how you did, whether it's the politicians, the business folks, free enterprise or public, now that this has gone by a few years and there's both a lot of good and a lot of controversy behind it, and it's all public, people can read about it. How do you feel about that decision that you made a few years ago? Yeah, well, I feel good about it for, from our standpoint uh, at Gravity Payments. I feel like it's made our company a lot stronger. Um, I'm grateful for it personally. It's made, made my life better as well. 
But I would say on our company, it's just made us uh, stronger. And uh, I'll give you some, some proof points on that. So we had prior to the $70,000 living wage announcement, we had between zero and two babies born per year amongst the entire team. And we've had over 60 in less than six years since the announcement. So we had a 10X baby boom. We also had a 10X boom in terms of people buying homes for the first time. And I feel like that's so critical in some situations, especially in a place like Seattle, where the housing market just goes up and up and up to get that, you know, get that locked in in terms of having a home that you can control so your rent's not going to be going up endlessly. That was huge for us. We also had 70% of the people at the company announce that they had paid down debt because a lot of people felt like, oh, with higher incomes, you can get more debt and you can get yourself in a way more trapped. And our team did exactly the opposite of that. And uh, lastly, we between doubled and tripled our savings rate that people were using with the company 401k program. So people are saving a lot more for retirement. So I feel like it's been it's been really successful for us and it's been great to be a part of. Dan, do you mind unpacking? I mean, I just gave like a, a brief intro. So the audience kind of is probably saying, oh, I remember that story. Maybe yeah. I didn't give all the details of the numbers. You know, walk sure. us through how the math works. Walk us through when the decision yeah. was made. You just kind of give us the details of it, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. Great point. Great point. So, so we had about a third of the employees at the company making about $35,000 per year. And... Um, in order to raise that third to 70,000 plus um, a, you know, a few others that were working at the company that were also under $70,000 per year, it was gonna cost us about $2 million, which was 100% of our profitability at that time. And um, you know, it was one of these things where it just seemed like, like, a, like a moral imperative especially because at that time I was making a million dollars a year. So I took a million dollar pay right cut. There? Can I stop you just for a yeah. So I'm curious. So sure. a third of your employees were making $35,000, uh, yep. $35,000 per year. Did you say another third was making less or they were making, uh, what was they the were, They were making, so the, I don't know if it was quite a third, but there was probably, there was a third that was making more than 70,000 a year and maybe okay. like close to a third in the middle. I yeah. got it. So a third was making 35, a third was making above 70,000. What percentage was making say above 100,000 or above 200,000 at the time? Oh, um, you know, just a handful of us. Okay, got you it. Know what I mean, got it. you know, um, definitely there were there were there were a handful, maybe a dozen at the most, but not not more than that. Okay, so that was. And, let me bring you back to where it was before I interrupt yeah. you, and let's because I want the audience to hear the whole part of it. You said at the time, sure. in order for us to bring the third to from thirty-five thousand to seventy thousand, we would have to use our two million dollars of profits that we had. It would have been a hundred percent of it, and you were making one point yeah. one million. Continue from there before I interrupted you. Please go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sounds good. So, um, so yeah, we ha we had the third making uh, thirty five thousand a year that they were really due to get their pay doubled, and at the time we had two about two million in profits. Plus, I was making a million dollars per year, so it was going to cost us over two million dollars a year to make the change. So I had to lower my pay to seventy thousand, so we'd have that savings plus put most of the company's profits at risk to basically pay for the change. But what that meant was a third of the people working at the company were not only getting their pay doubled, but they were getting paid an amount that was in line 
with what scientific studies, including uh, um, by Princeton, a 2010 Princeton study said, if you make less than this amount, it's really harming your well-being. And so it was important for us as a company to take our responsibility seriously to not have a pay policy to harm people's well-being. And so that's why it was, I call it a moral imperative, meaning it was not something that I felt like we should do. It was something I felt like we absolutely had to do, um, had to do, had to do, had to do. And so we came out, we made the announcement. And as you said, there was a lot of initial positive attention, but there was also quite a bit of controversy. And there were seven or eight big, you know, in our world felt big storylines about the controversy about it. But the biggest one by far was that conservative talk radio host Rush Limbaugh had come out and said that we were going to fail. And he said we would be a case study in MBA programs about how socialism does not work because the entire company was going to go out of business. And he was predicting this. And then when Rush Limbaugh set out that big firestorm, the New York Times did a story largely on the fact that Rush Limbaugh was trying to tank us and uh, centered around all of the challenges that we were facing with such a huge backlash. In fact, the headline in the New York Times that was, as you said, the, the top read story of the week was, uh, was, a back, was about a backlash. The, the whole headline was about the backlash. And then Rush Limbaugh came out with that and put on his website what Rush was right and he said that we were going out of business and he had my picture all of his website saying we were we were going under and so um fortunately though uh it did become a case study at harvard um that they are teaching right now in fact i heard from a harvard professor an endowed harvard professor just in the last week that he's still teaching the case study and uh and it's been successful it's a case study showing how this sort of thing works and when you pay people more, your company is going to be more successful. I'd love to see that case study, but I think it's also a little too early uh, to get all of it. I think it'll take a decade or two, two to get it. But again, I am in a selfish way thankful you did it. I'm, I'm thankful in a selfish way you're doing it because we're all learning right now. Believe it or not, everybody's learning. One person's taking this and everybody else gets to kind of watch and see how this works. Now, I got two questions for you. One is more yeah. business-wise, the other one is philosophical. So let's stay on the business side first and then we'll go philosophical. On the business end, um, your top line revenue at the time versus your top line revenue today. I mean, obviously you've helped people have more sex because you're saying it's 10X how many babies people are having. So your employees are definitely happy when they go home, they're making babies. So kudos to you, you're helping increase the population. but. Top line revenue from the moment you made the decision to today, how much has it grown? Uh, it's triple. Okay, so three. And when was it when you announced it? What's the exact date? 2015. 2015. So in six years, uh, your top line has tripled, which respect to that, your profit. Yeah, and, and just, to, just to clarify too, in our industry, how we measure the most important metric that people look at in our industry, because there are a few different ways of looking at it is merchant processing volume process. So all the 20,000 small businesses that use Gravity for their payment processing yes. are processing triple the amount of small business payments acceptance through gravity system as they were in 2015. Well, the one thing to give you credit, uh, this is not a business you did to make money. This was a cause driven business because you were not happy about what Visa and MasterCard were doing to 
you know, the amount of fees they were charging with them. Yeah. So you wanted to come out, you said, as much as you guys are paying taxes, what Visa MasterCard is doing is nothing close to what taxes are doing. So I, I, I want to make sure the audience knows that you did this for the right reason. But your top line revenue has 3x in six years. Mm -hmm. How are you managing your profit margin as an entrepreneur running your business? How do you manage that? So we get together the whole company, which we just did since it was, you know, um, like the, the start of a new year, not too long ago. Yeah, we get together as a whole team and we decide how we're going to determine that, you know, for the next few years, because we kind of do it somewhat on a rolling basis. And out of the 200, there's about 55 people that either volunteer or are nominated by their peers to basically make those decisions. And then we get together for an entire week. Uh, this year we did it virtually on Zoom, but we get together for an entire uh, week and we have really long meetings and we go through and we try to figure out how much profit margin do we need to be safe as a company and how much can we invest and you know increase budgets and those sorts of things so we figure it out all together have you come up with a sweet spot is it five percent ebitda is it ten percent ebitda do you have a number for it um you know sometimes we do it, it really it depends so much on circumstances but i would say you know um one of the things that we think about is managing for longevity because we don't we don't want to lay anybody off which we never have. And we also want to be there for small businesses when times are tough. We want to be strong when times are tough. And so that that is normally what causes us to say, oh, you know, we, we need to be making some profit so that we can, you know, stay strong and, and build up our savings, pay down debt, that would sort you of say thing. 10%, what number would you say? 5%, 10%, 20%? Well, it depends on which number you're talking about because our our business is kind of convoluted and it, 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 it might take a little bit to kind of get into it. But basically, just to kind of give you like our numbers, like we what we process in payments, you know, is like roughly like $15 billion a year in round numbers. And then from that, what our small businesses pay to us to process those payments is roughly a little bit less than $300 million. And then most of that is interchange that goes to Visa and MasterCard. And that's the money that the card that issued the, ba the, 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 the bank that issued that bank card, they get that money. And so that takes us down to about like 45 million, something like that. And then from that, you know, we try to eke out like a profit of, you know, four or five million dollars to basically, yeah, yeah, like pay. So, so it's, it's 10% of the net number or the, another way of thinking of it is like 2% of the gross number. Just so you know, I fully know your business model. You're an ISO, right? You're, you're an ISO. Yeah. You're, I, I had a merchant account company years ago. I'm very familiar with the model, how it works. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, so, okay. So on the top line, uh, let's just say 45 million, you're netting 4 million. So that's about 10%. What do you guys do with that for? Do you just sit on it? Do you wait for other projects? Does it kind of make the company stronger? So if we want to bring more people on, how do you guys use that 4 million? Yeah, basically all of those ways. Um, we we did have a, a company approach us in Boise and they were called Charge It Pro. And they said, well, if we sell this company Charge It Pro, to anybody else in your industry or to any investors, they're going to lay off our employees and consolidate a lot of that work into a larger company. Mm -hmm. 
And the, all those employees in Idaho at the time they had 40 employees, those employees are going to get laid off and they're going to lose their job. And so the owners of that company came to us and said, hey, you know, we really feel like you would be the right ones to like take this on because we know that you all are in it for the long haul and we know you believe in taking care of employees. So we can trust you and you're literally the only buyer. So, you know, I don't know like what I have to keep private for them or whatnot, but it was a still a substantial amount of money that we needed to pay to like make all that happen and integrate the two companies. And then secondarily, that company, their median wage was 25,000 a year. And so we had to triple the pay <laughs> of over half the employees. Yeah after the acquisition and whereas like our competitors would be thinking about laying off all those employees sure. we we literally were working on tripling all like half of the more than half of the employees pay but that was like an example where we took on some debt to the seller and so a lot of that profit for a number of years after that went to pay down that like debt to that seller so that's an example, and um, and then another example would be would be savings and and taxes. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, so so going back to uh, uh, the question with business, let's stay on business still. Uh, currently, right now, your org chart. If we were to look at your org chart on what it was in 2015 when you announced this versus what it is today, I asked you how many people did you have making over a hundred thousand dollars or two hundred thousand dollars? You said maybe a handful. You were making one point one. Did you have anybody as a second uh, highest over 200? How many did you have over six figures? And what happened to those uh, 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 C-suite executives that you had? Yeah, so um, I believe all of them uh, stayed for at least quite a while. And I think the majority are still there. I mean, I'd have to kind of like think through like- How many um, employees you got, by the way? How many total employees do you have? a little under 200 we're 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 doing a hiring push right now that'll get us over 200. when you say you have to check to see if they're with you did you have any c-suite executives then or you didn't not really i mean okay. well okay yes and no so it's hard to say because a lot of the people that are in kind of top leadership positions at gravity they've been there their whole career they started their career at gravity and so we all kind of work more like as a team and we've had to like get more clarity on things like org chart and everything mostly just for for people from the outside coming in so they can be more comfortable and feel more of a sense of transparency that they understand who to talk to and what's going on but that was very unnatural for us because you know i started building this company when i was 17. i i came from rural idaho i grew up literally down the street from a dump and so i didn't I knew some of those things, but I just liked the feeling of basically helping small businesses. And I really enjoyed that. So I did that like 17, 18 and 19. Then I launched officially Gravity at 19. And then it was more just like finding people that like that just as much as I did. And so we were kind of all doing it together. So a lot of those folks, you know, are, are still at the company and some are in leadership positions. Some have been in leadership positions, but then found that they actually preferred being in a role where they just can help customers directly because that's what originally attracted them to the company. 
So we have people that have been executives at the company that are still at the company that are not executives today and are much happier not, you know, being in a position that suits what they like to do better. So that's why it's like a little bit hard to answer like with precision. But I will say that um, it also tends to be a bit of a rotating role sometimes. And I don't know why this is, but we do have a, a lot of people at the company who are first time managers first-time leaders and 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 then we have a lot of people at the company who have been in those management and leadership positions but found it was not really anything that they enjoyed too much but they wanted to stay at the company as an individual contributor so it's a bit of a, 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 a it's a bit of a spaghetti salad for you yeah you know you just took me to a whole different place when I'm thinking about your your business model is how do you sell the vision? Like when you say, hey, you know, one day we're going to be what? One day, hey, Johnny, I want you to work on yourself in these areas because one day you're going to be able to. What is that? Right. One day I'm going to be what? Sell me the vision. How do you sell me the vision when I'm in the meeting with you? Or is it the complete opposite where you say, who cares about a nice car? Who cares about a nice house? Who cares about having a million in a bank? Who cares about being rich? Who cares about going to Hawaii? Who cares about going to Europe? Who cares? How do you sell the vision of where the individual is going and where the company is going? Yeah, yeah. I I, I, I I, hear what you're saying. And the way I would think of it is like, do you tell somebody that they should want lots of money or do you tell somebody that they should not want lots of money? And my answer is I don't tell people what they want. They decide what they want. And so I don't really, I don't, it's up to them. I know in general what the social science says about human beings, which is the way people are motivated at the highest level and the way the, the people that make the most important achievements get find their motivation is through internal drive. They call it in, ec, intrinsic motivation as opposed to extrinsic. But basically, autonomy, mastery, purpose, and social connection are the four strongest motivators on earth, but something like money or title or prestige is a much more common motivator because if you're motivated by money or title or prestige or power, then you tend to get those things and you tend to use those things to control other people. And also just human nature, money, prestige, power, those more competitive type motivations they are, they're very enticing to people. They're alluring to people, but they're not as strong in terms of actually causing people to do good work. They're short-term positive motivators, but in the long-term, they tend to make people in general, not every person, there's certainly exceptions, but in general, they tend to make people kind of miserable and unmotivated. And so what we do is instead try to create a platform together whereby all of us, myself included, can do things that make us feel alive, can do things that make us feel meaning. And for us, what brings us together originally was helping small businesses. But secondarily, what when we said, well, why? Why do we love helping small businesses so much? Is because we like the little guy. We want to help the little guy. And that's what motivates us. But to and help so, the little guy do what though? Help the little guy do what? Because I'm a little guy. I started off as a little guy. So this is a guy. I like. I grew up in a divorced family. 
I lived at a refugee camp in Germany, 10 years Iran. So I was a 1.8 GPA kid. I went to the army. I was a welfare kid. I don't have a four-year degree. I don't have a two-year degree. I didn't have anything. I'm, I'm the guy that had a lunch ticket going to school from seventh grade to 12th grade. And I've never taken English 101. It's always been ESL. My entire life, I've only taken ESL. So define what is helping the little guy. What does helping the little guy mean to you? Well, so the way we got there was, you know, these small businesses were obviously being bullied by the system overall. By Visa and MasterCard, they set the rates that the small businesses pay. And like twice a year, they raise the rates on the small businesses and there's no competition. It's not like the business can be like, okay, I'm gonna stop taking Visa or I'm, not, I'm gonna stop taking MasterCard. And so the small businesses basically have to take whatever these big, huge companies say that they have to take. And it's really wrong. And, you know, in a place like Idaho, where I grew up, you know, you see the impact of that on those small businesses far away from that boardroom in New York City, where they decided we can increase our share price by charging these small businesses that can't afford it a bunch of fees for money that we don't need to run our business that we're then going to use to inflate our stock with stock buybacks so that we can pay executive bonuses and so i was seeing that as a 17 year old and there was a coffee shop named moxie java caldwell in caldwell idaho and there was a, the owner heather hempel she was explaining to me how she was getting screwed over and she didn't necessarily know all the backstory of like how it all works behind that but she was explaining to me she was getting screwed over and she introduced me to some of her friends that said the same thing so it's like how do we fight against this how do we hold these big companies accountable but the name of the game right now in business and in, in big tech and big companies and big wall street is captured in uh, the work of Peter Thiel, the book Zero to One, where he wrote Competition is for Losers. So what the new kind of people that style themselves as capitalists actually believe, they don't believe in competition. They believe in using their money and their superior positions of power to stamp out competition. And the entire economy is starting to line up with that philosophy. That's and you see it- The book Zero to One? You thought that yeah, was saying in the book. That's not what I took from the book when he said zero to one. Well, so he, 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 that's an exact quote. So your reading skills maybe I, were I know that. I that know that, day. but I think what he was trying to say is, have you read Blue Ocean Strategy? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the direction where he was going. Like create a market where there is no competition. Like, you know, where you're, where you're going into a place where you're the you know first one to go out there and do it. You don't have anybody else to compete against versus go destroy everybody and dominate the entire market. Well, well let's, that's what Theo was talking about. Let's look at the weight of the evidence to see if what your 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 posit is correct or mine. So he made two other big points. The two biggest points in the book actually that contextualize the statement. Number one, if you really want to be significant, if you really want to matter, you need to be a billionaire. That was his first point in the book. And that's very much in line with zero to one. It's binary. Do you know what he means by that? Do you know what he means? Let me, by let, that? let me finish and then, and then, I'll, and then I'll see what. Yeah, I do know what he means. I think I do. Tell me. Yeah, yeah. Either you're a zero, which means a non-billionaire. 
you don't matter. Or you're a one, which means you're a billionaire. You do matter. That's the ideology that regular people all over are seeing. And it's one thing for us to say, well, I want to keep that intact because I want to get there. I want to climb that ladder. But if you look at the social mobility statistics that are out there right now, having a ladder like that isn't climbable. And here's why. It's his second point. So that's his first thesis point. But he has two parallel theses in that book. How do you become a billionaire? How do you become somebody that matters? He asked that question. And he says that the only way to become a billionaire is to have a monopoly. And the reason why is because if you have a monopoly, you can act with impunity. There's no accountability. And he uses softer language than that. But if you think about the implication, you can lay off employees with no consequences. You can go be like Uber Eats and you can get Cardi B and Dana Carvey to do some kind of Wayne's World commercial and spend $10 million at the same time that your business model is trying to extract maximum value from local businesses and you do a commercial claiming that you're helping local businesses at the same time you're laying off employees at the same time you're paying huge executive bonuses and at the same time that you're buying out competitors. I mean, this is what people on Reddit that some people would call her crazy think of as late stage capitalism because it's like, where can you actually take things after this? Like, where do you go next? And basically since the 1970s or the 1980s, so much of our success in business has been about squeezing people about exploiting workers. That's been the that's been around the economy, but now it's becoming just more and more scammy throughout. And if you think about your own life, just when you go out and live your life, how many scams are you subjected to on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis now? Or how many times are you kind of slightly mistreated? And it could be little things like getting the text to lose 100 pounds with a diet pill. I'm looking at you. You definitely should not lose 100 pounds. That would be a bad thing. It could be the, the scam phone call claiming to be Social Security Administration. It could be It could be the fact that, you know, you used to check into a hotel and whatever price they told you the price was, was the actual price. And now there's a $50 resort fee. Or you go into an airline and you can pay the, yeah, the rate that they advertise, but to do it, you're gonna sit in the middle seat by the bathroom. And so, so much more of our economy now is designed to extract maximum resources, engineer, use those resources to marshal, to marshal you know, engineering um, capabilities and then engineering a space away from competition or away from actual even customers. I mean, we have examples of businesses like Uber Eats that will claim that they're advertising for a local company and then be redirecting that company's customers to a different company. And it's a complete scam and it's legal. And so going back to Peter Thiel with his second point of how do you become a billionaire? He said the only way to do it really is to become a monopoly so that you can act with impunity. So what I'm sharing to you about Heather and other people like you that didn't start out from much, 
they're being held down more than you realize by this system that we're all supporting. And yeah, it's true that we have individual examples like yourself that show the way and show, wow, somebody can be successful. But what those examples do, and I'll, I'll actually point the finger at myself more than anybody else, but what those examples do is they kind of lie to us. They make us think that the system does promote and allow people to get ahead when actually the fact that that we get held up, you and I get held up on pedestals proves the opposite. It proves that we are the exception and it proves that most people don't reach that. And just for myself, you know, you pointed out how 500 million people had seen my story and how people were so enthusiastic about it. How low is the bar when somebody who basically says the people actually creating the value should get it, they should have autonomy and we should work together to help small businesses gets that kind of attention. How much does that prove how low the bar is? Because everything that I did, you can't find a single thing I did that a nice eight-year-old wouldn't do. Let me ask and yet that was the response. Yeah. So I think it shows everything about where we are right now. No, I, I think I think the reason why that story went viral is because a younger generation relates, relates to a ton and they're coming out of college and they're more in the state of rich people are bad people, capitalism sucks because that's what the universities do and that's what they're teaching them. And then all of a sudden they see a story like you and they're going to share the hell out of it. And I'm glad it got the exposure because we need to have this discussion. Here's my question for you. Your company is doing four million a year. Okay, net four, four and a half million a year is what the number is. Let's just say four and a half million a year. 10% is the number. Let's say that. Just so you know, 10% is relatively what the average merchant account company does. It's about a, It's a very small margin. Merchant account is not big margins. You don't make a lot of profit on merchant accounts. There are some that abuse it back in the days in the 90s where they would sell the equipment for financing. If you remember for $199, well, you weren't around at that time, but they would sell it for $199, 36-month period, and people were making money. But nowadays, machines are generally free. It's more on the fees that people play around. Okay. So you're making the same amount of profits that the average merchant account company is making. Are you the 100% owner of the company or is the company shared with everybody, the equity? I own the company. Okay. So, so if you own 100% of the company, that means you're probably worth 100 to $200 million because in, in the world of merchant account, the X is higher. You know, it's a 20 to 40X type of a number. You and I know this. Would you, would you feel confident or comfortable giving your 200 employees a half a percent of your company to make it fair that everybody owns a piece? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. So we've, we've had a lot of internal discussions about that over the years. And I'm open to it. Um, the, the reason why it hasn't happened so far is there's a, there's a belief amongst the team that if you kind of buy into the shareholder supremacy model that you're kind of pitching me right now, and the idea that shareholders um, should maximize like what they get, which is kind of what your question is predicated on, if we have shareholders, then we will have to behave in that way as the concern. And I think that there is a legal defense and a legal basis for, to say that, no, that's not the case. But it, it could be tricky, especially if somebody is in a situation where if we started acting in accordance with these 
principles that you and I disagree on about Peter Thiel where I don't want to do that. I don't believe in screwing people over. I don't believe in screwing over those small businesses. He didn't say screw people over. Peter Thiel never said screwing people over. Well, Peter Thiel said uh, a, a monopoly. And to have a monopoly, you and I both know in order to have a monopoly, you need the government to do a monopoly. He never said screw people over to be a billionaire. That's not his words. But I do know what you're saying. You said I, number one is to matter is to be a billionaire. And then, you know, the other part when you said is to have a monopoly. Yeah, he did say that. And I recall in the books, I've read it multiple times. Yeah, well, and that informs what he meant when he said competition is for losers, because in his mind, loser and non-billionaire are basically the same. They're very close. No, you, you just said right now to screw people over like Peter Thiel said, I want to make sure I differentiate those two because I don't remember him saying make your money by screwing people over. That's just your belief system that you think screwing people over. Well, I don't think it's that much of a leap. Okay, so let me go if, back to the question I asked. The question I asked, you, you thought I was asking it from the standpoint of maximizing uh, shareholder profits. That's not what I yeah, was Yeah, so the way, the, way yeah. We, the way we run the company, the, 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 it's not worth that much. No, no, that's not what I was asking about. My question was more yeah. or less about if you, if you feel everyone's making 70K and you're making 70K, why not share the equity company with everybody? Why own 100% of it? Because you're sitting there worth a couple hundred million. Why not have them have a few hundred thousand dollars of net worth added to them? Yeah. So it's because the 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 shares currently like we're not public. Like so the shares aren't. You can't like go sell them. You know what I mean? Oh, but you can give a, a, a stock options where the individual can invest over a five year period. And there are a lot of people that work for companies who are not public that give shares that allows the individual to build up their network. Because right now your employees don't have a high network. You do. So although you are being very noble on the area of giving everybody a $70,000 salary, I'm thinking if you're going to go that, why not go fully and give everybody a piece of the company so it's equally shared with everyone? Because yeah. if you do that, then that takes the case study. Again, remember, I'm coming from a selfish place because I want to see how this thing works long term on the case study. So if you did 200 employees get a half a percent and you put a five-year vesting yeah. period that they have to stay there, would you consider doing that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great idea, but I'll say I'm not sure that I'm really able to to connect with you or explain to you like like what some of the danger and downside would be to doing it. But I still think it, it's a, it's it's something good that we need to consider either way. Yeah, I see. But I, I think but I think that it's so hard. I think I could be wrong, but I think it's so hard because we're so deep in the system. The economic system. It's so hard, I think, for somebody that's like working at that deep level in the system to understand a world divorced from shareholder supremacy. And I think that I think that if you could understand like a a world other than shareholder supremacy, I think it would make the way that you're thinking through and analyzing the issue very different. Yeah, the only way I'm thinking about it is I'm thinking about it in a way of uh, hey, this is the amount of money that came in. Why don't we take the money that came to LA District County and let's yeah. use the money to do? So if you have equity, because you, you're you're in a very 
You're a very let me try guy. to explain it to you. I, I, I feel like I feel like you're I feel like you really want to understand. So let me try really hard to explain it to you. I don't think um, it's, I want to understand. Let me explain to you my question. I think you got to understand my question. Here's my question. My question isn't like I run a company. We don't think that way, right? So you're saying, how come you guys don't think the way I think? No, that's not and what I'm, I'm like. I actually it, don't think the way you think. I don't yeah. think the way you think. What I'm yeah, so I don't you, know how to answer the question then. No, because what I'm saying to you is if you're worth 200 million, why don't you give yeah. equal amount of shares to your employees? So they also have- I'm not worth share. 200 million. Say 100 million, whatever. I'm not worth, worth 100 million. I asked you earlier, if you're doing four and a half million EBITDA, they pay you 20 to 40%. That's about a hundred million dollar net worth. No, no, it isn't. How, how is it not? A, if a person wanted to buy, if I, if I were to right now, you're a pretty transparent guy. That's what made you unique. What made you unique is the fact that you were willing to be transparent. You were very much about my income's 1.1. 1. 1. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would love to explain it to you. I don't know if I'm going to be able to, but I'll try if you want. I'm all ears. Tell us. Okay. So currently the way the economy works, as I understand it, is the, the, the most important thing that drives the companies is this thing that this guy Milton Friedman came up with, right? Shareholder value. And basically the companies are currently run in general with what's going to enhance the stock price at some time horizon. Okay. And then the, the, there's something that the compensation experts do called alignment, incentive alignment. And basically what they do is they take those stock price targets and things that the corporation wants to achieve like a higher stock price. And they set up incentives for the executives and employees and stuff like that so that it creates what the what the experts call alignment between the shareholders who are kind of set up as the pri primary beneficiary of the of the scheme and it creates a, a harmonious it purports to create a harmonious relationship between them and ma quote unquote management or top executives so that they'll be aligned so that the executives when they have to make a really tough decision that's going to prop up the stock price, that incentive is designed to make sure that the executives make the decision that's good for the shareholders, good for the stock price. And the value, the multiples that you talked about are predicated on having a management team that and, and a setup of a company that's run in this matter. If you took the exact same metrics, but you told shareholders they can never lay off employees ever. If you took the exact same metrics and you told employees you can never raise customer prices in a way that's an unjustifiable money grab. If you told the investors they were no longer allowed to do those things, and they wouldn't be able to expect any type of liquidity event from the company really ever, but not on any specific time horizon, and they couldn't create it, then the value of those shares would be depressed significantly. And it would basically create a situation where it was a fraction. The company would be worth in that scenario, a fraction of what it's otherwise worth. So in a world 
in a world where we're planning to join this kind of scam that everybody can see that I think you may, you know, you may be bought into a little bit. <laughs> if we if we decide that we're willing to participate in that scam and just to just to have the rubber meet the road for you, because I think this one will really land with you. I had a, a gentleman come up to me who I've known for for close to two decades, been a mentor of mine, been a CEO of multiple successful companies in our industry and run multi, multiple multi-billion dollar companies in our industry. And he came up to me and said, Dan, I could come join Gravity or somebody like me and I could turn this into a multi-billion dollar company within a few years because if we unwound this and that, you know, like not doing layoffs in the pandemic when our competitor Toast used it as an excuse to lay off 50% of their employees when their value was going from $5 billion to $8 billion, not doing a $100 uh, price increase in the pandemic to small businesses like our competitor Heartland that's owned by Global Payments, a public company. These are the, the playbooks and the models in our industry and the value that you're putting out there is it is based on the idea that you're going to play ball in this way. And Obi was saying that. And I was like, you know what? I don't think the world needs another billionaire. And I don't even know that the world needs like a whole lot more like multimillionaires out there. I think what we need is a company that's willing to stick up for what's right, stick up, stick up for these principles. And the way we run the organization currently when we get together and make decisions is we do it as if shareholders don't exist. So we, we consider shareholders at zero when we're considering how to run the company. All of a sudden, if we create the type of incentive alignment that somebody who's like a hardcore capitalist, like an unapologetic, unapologetic capitalist would, yeah, would, 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 would try to get us to do, are we still going to run the company in the same way after that, right? And the answer to that is maybe not. And I would like to think that we're all such good people that we would turn away from the opportunity to make more money, to stick up for what's right, to stick up for our values. But currently we just do it by basically taking all of that money and, and basically considering it to be money that's really most rightfully you know, uh, considered uh, as, a, as an asset for clients, small businesses, employees, how can we use these resources to help? And all of a sudden, if we created that kind of incentive alignment structure, it would, it would really take us and make us less of what we are and more of what companies that you're used to seeing. I got to tell you, I understand what you're saying. I listened to every word you said, very good explanation. I understand philosophically where you stand where it's, hey, Pat, I don't think my company's worth what you think it is because if I were to sell it, which I never will, I would have to go by the new buyer's guidelines of having to sell in the future, which I wouldn't want, which means a person that would buy it today, I don't think the margin's gonna be 20 to 40 times, which I wouldn't agree to, but still, you're 100% owner. And this is the risk where I see, and I wanna kinda tell you this, and, and try to destroy my argument. Say, you're, you're, an, you're a fool, you have no clue what the hell you're talking about, destroy, do whatever you wanna do with it, because I wanna, I wanna kinda get your perspective. So if I work for you and I'm one of your $70,000, your employees of the 200, that's doing 45 million top line revenue that the company's keeping four and a half, four and a half million, 10% net profits. And which you own a hundred percent of, 
I have to almost believe you are Jesus or God or somebody of such power to trust 100% that you will never flip. I have to almost trust you 100%, which then you become like a God figure. And that's a lot of pressure Yeah, because most people who are uh, human beings like you and I, uh, I'm not sure if you've tried to walk on water. I've tried many times. I fail every single time. Maybe you have. I can't. So then, then I have to sit there and say, why do I don't trust a hundred? How do your employees trust you 100%? Do they kind of see you as a God or how, how do they see you like a prophet? How do your employees see you? Yeah. Well, a couple things. Um, Cause I want to, I want to answer your question very specifically about us, but then I want to make a broader point about how I think it relates to your, you know, you and, and other people out there and people watching us right now. So, I think it just shows, again, my main point about how low the bar is, because we assume, and frankly, pretty much correctly so, that everybody out there that has ownership and power and those sorts of things is going to flip and basically trade the things that matter in life, which are relationships, care, love, trust, integrity for the things that don't matter in life uh, or don't matter as much once you have enough. So money really matters. It buys happiness, but it doesn't buy happiness once you're making a, a hundred or 150 or 200,000 a year. It doesn't buy happiness, certainly when you're making three or 400,000 a year. If you make more than that, that's not in general for most people going to help them. And so we assume that we are all so greedy and power hungry. And that might be a safe assumption. That might be a safe assumption. And that might be a safe assumption about me. But if it is, then what we need to do is so clear. We need to have a very high tax rate with wealthy people. And we need to set rules because soon with AI and robotics and all that being private, we're going to have these private armies of security. We're going to have these people that control a level of power over all of us. And when you think about automation, when you think about the fact that so many jobs are going to be eliminated, something like UBI, universal basic income, these are the types of uh, solutions that we need to institute. And what I'll say is, here's, here's my big failing. Here's where I really do think I failed. I've allowed myself to become an excuse for the current system and perpetuating the status quo because people can point at my story and say, hey, this guy came from very humble beginnings, grew up in Idaho, look at what he did. But the reality is you're exactly right because zero big companies have followed suit. And as a result, we have, we have been pushing millions of people into poverty with our system as set up to basically reward and not tax the people at the very top, the millionaires and billionaires, and instead be predatory, scammy, and tax the people at the bottom. So if we all work together in unison with one voice to reverse that system, that's really our last line of, def of, of protection overall. And in my company, we should institute some of those rules so that even if I do turn out to, you know, go to the dark side, as you say someday, like we'll all be protected. Yeah. 
So a couple things. One, I agree. I think we do need a flat tax. It sounds like you're pitching a flat tax right now where everybody gets taxed the same exact I'm pitching. I'm pitching over 10 million. I would be super comfortable with a 50, 60, or even 70%, maybe even 80, 90% tax rate. I think we need to get the- Where has uh, that worked? Uh, Dan, what, what countries has a 70, 80, 90% tax rate ever worked? The United States, for one, when we implemented this in the in the 40s and 50s, we had two periods in a row that were about a decade at each where median incomes doubled after we did it. So it's worked right here in the United States, but currently it's working very well in places like Costa Rica, in Denmark, in 90%, Norway. 90%? Over, over a huge amount, yes. Yeah, yeah. It, but but the, I think you're, you're not talking about income. You're talking about the Elizabeth Warren, if you're worth over 50 million, that's a wealth tax you're talking about. You're I, think talking about. Okay, I think so we need both. I think we need both. Let me go back to this. So yeah. I think uh, one, on them trusting you 100%, I think you ought to consider giving 100% of your equity to all your employees. I think you ought to consider doing that. And then also writing it down and saying in the Constitution, before I give the shares to you, if we ever sell and anybody who buys the company has to be agreeing to the Constitution, the profits goes to you, but you cannot philosophically change the following bylaw. So if I'm coming to buy, I may not pay you 40x, but I'll pay 10x and all the employees that own some of the shares, they'll get profits. So I think you ought to consider giving out to your let employees. Me, but let me just say, if you end up coming to work at Gravity Payments at any point, your opinion on this will will it, it already matters and i'll already listen to what you say and think about it but if you worked at gravity and you wanted to talk to employees about this idea and see like do you have support i'd be super excited about that I, by the way i'd love to come talk to your employees i'm being that cool. serious with you i'd love to but i mean you have to be working there for a while first and gain their credibility you if you want me you, you don't want me to talk to your 200 employees it wouldn't be good you don't want no me no i wouldn't i wouldn't mind it's just i have to, to yeah, no, but yeah. I think I think that there's such a disconnect with how you see the world and how we see the world that I feel like in order for your message to really land, I feel like there's a certain amount of I'm like seeing. So I'm dangerous. You see, for me, I like to talk to guys. I don't think you're dangerous. I, see, I don't think you are either. But you, you, yeah. you so the one thing that uh, I can say almost everybody that I know who has strong opinions about the opposing side they also make assumptions. You've made a lot of assumptions. You yourself, even in this recording, if you go back and listen to it, you've made the assumptions of whether how wealthy people are, how billionaires are, whether you've said people that make over $300,000, they're not as happy as I would assume. I said in general, the, the science proves that. No, no, no. So an assumption, let me, let me parse this out for you. So an assumption would be to say about one person as an individual. Yeah. But the scientific studies say this is true for people in general you can't pull out one person from that that would be an assumption i'm going to call the assumption cops to come and audit both of us i'm going to say to all the assumptions cops out there to all the assumptions cops if i made assumptions comment below give me the minute if dan made assumptions hold us accountable put it below i'm willing to say if i made assumptions as long as my buddy dan is also willing to commit to if he made assumptions and everybody can do that survey and we'll, we'll talk about that you and i afterward uh, so, so Dan, question for you. Uh, I'm, I'm very curious in the way you were raised. How's your relationship right now with your family? How are you with mom, dad, your, your brother, your sister? How's the family relationships? Oh, I mean, I, 
I, I don't want to get into that too much just to protect everyone's privacy, but I love my family so much and I'm so grateful for them. The, the reason why I say that is because of one thing that's so interesting about you. You were a Bible memorization competition in fifth and sixth grade. I mean, that's crazy to me, Dan. Like, I have a hard time remembering John 3.16. You're talking about memorizing Bibles. He was raised as a conservative Christian family where he and his siblings took turns walking, waking at 5 a.m. to make breakfast before Bible readings, you know, and, and I mean, are you still, do you still subscribe to any of the Christian evangelical philosophies or no? I would say my belief about those things is, um, is a constant, uh, growth in the way I would, the way I would, uh, answer specifically is like, there was a, actually a Christian pastor that I was talking to one time and I said, Paul, and I wrote about this in my book. So it's, it's, it's out there. But I said, Paul, like, don't you lose sleep worrying if maybe this stuff isn't true? And he said, no, I never lose sleep over that. And I was like, why? Like, I'm like so worried about it. You know what I mean? And he was like, Dan, I just, I focus on growing and opening up my mind and trying to learn everything I can, but our beliefs evolve so fast and even Christianity means something totally different today than it did 20 years ago. And so his his philosophy, which I... I've, you to, to you, Christianity means something different than 20 years ago or to the world? I would say to the world. There's the contours have evolved in the last 20 years. That could you be know, an assumption. That could be categorically an assumption right there. They, we found one right there, Dan. Uh, how is it an assumption? You're assuming it's different 20 in the last 20 years. What's changed in the last 20 years with Christianity? I'm curious. Well, um, you're speaking to a 25 year atheist. So just just assume <laughs> I'm being serious with you. This yeah, is a 25 year atheist. Here you're right. Well, that might explain why it's coming across differently than I intend, because, you know, growing up studying theology for an hour every day, which I did for a long time. And in particular, Christian theology, which is where I spent the majority of my time. The 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 kind of what we call the canon of christianity like the center of christianity most christian scholars believe that it's a combination of things including tradition including culture and the apostle paul who's one of the most famous authors in the bible or supposed authors depending on what you believe there the apostle paul when he would write letters to different churches he would tell one church something that i think is inexcusable but you know i'll just use an example he would say like oh with this follow these sets of rules and then for another church he'd say follow these sets of rules and peter came who was you know the high apostle to jesus and peter came and he and paul was leading this church where he wasn't following all the rules about what you can eat and what you can eat and paul was explaining to peter that he believes that Christianity is, it's an interaction between their faith and the culture and the people of that day. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so he was explaining to Peter how like those things and Peter and him had a fight and this was gonna be a big problem. You have your two most powerful leaders in your church and they're having a, like a, a, a knockout fight and Peter had a dream where there was a big cloth 
and it tore. And this was the most important cloth in the world. And there were all these animals that Paul was saying they could eat that all of a sudden Peter had this sense from his dream that they were okay now. So that was like a moment like in the canon of Christianity where like the, 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 the religion evolves. But I mean, most, I, I don't want to say all, but the vast majority of theologians and the vast majority indeed of Christian theologians specifically, it, it, they, this is just an accepted fact for them that the church is constantly kind of changing because initially it was like an oral tradition where things would be passed down from generation to generation. And now you can have a, a situation where, you know, the Bible still holds up as the most talked about issue, caring for those who don't have enough, making sure people's basic needs are met. That's the top issue in the Bible. It's the top sin that's discussed people not having their basic needs met. And it's the top positive thing that's discussed in the Bible, people having those basic needs met. And equality is part of that discussion. But sometimes some of the more divisive and political issues of the day end up being the one that the church grapples with more. And, and so the church sometimes has a situation where you know, the Bible didn't change. So the Bible's still talking about feeding people that are hungry, but the church may be talking about any number of issues that are a little bit more of like the hot button issues of the day and the, and the things evolve. So the most, the largest Christian church in the world is the Roman Catholic church. And for example, they had something called Vatican II, where they said, oh, now we're not going to do our services in Latin anymore. We're going to do them in the local language. So to say that like the church has evolved over the last 20 years for somebody with my background, it doesn't sound like an assumption, but I can understand where you're saying it, it does come across to you like an assumption. No, it just to me is to say it's changed 20 years. It could in your eyes and your lens, but to others, it may be the same. It is today as it is 20 years ago, 40 years ago. But by the way, everything you said it's a level of skepticism i have myself who sits there and looks at it i was raised in a similar kind of an environment a christian family in iran where we got bombed 167 times in a day i'm wondering if god really loves why are we getting bombed 167. i had a lot of my own challenges when i went mm. about it but you thank know, you for sharing that Patrick. yeah you know when you say uh, uh the the basic uh, needs being met i fully agree I think the part about it that it's by choice, not by force. One of the challenges I see happening too many times with men, with us, and you obviously you're you're smart, you're you're a processor. I'm very curious about the way you think. We may not agree on uh, on a lot of things, but I really enjoy this conversation. I think the challenge that happens with God, with people, about 12 years ago, I started adding one thing to my affirmation list, and it was stop trying to be God. That job's already taken. You're not God. Let somebody else do that. You don't need to do that. I think too often, men uh, uh, and women, we try to act like God to force our philosophies upon others. And I think taxation is force. I don't think it's choice. And it drives a lot of the innovators insane when it's not by choice. The last thing you, you know, you know, they asked Jesus about that in the Bible. So they said because there was a debate at that time and they they went to jesus and they said jesus 
help us solve this debate because you have half the people saying taxation is theft, taxation is force, which I think is what you believe. I think by force it is. Yes, yeah, I do. And then on the other side, they were like, well, you know, it, it's really bad if we don't pay taxes because look at what happens. And so there was a group of people called the zealots who were basically saying, don't pay taxes. They were trying to get everyone to not pay taxes. I don't think we don't pay tax. Just so you know, I'm not. At yeah, the, yeah, I know. I know. A third. I'm, I'm a third. I'm a third yeah. is where I'm at. Just so you yeah. know. Go yeah. ahead. So Jesus said, well, let me see that coin that you have. Your money. Who's on it? You know what they said? Caesar. I've heard this a million times. Yep. And so the, the idea that we have a financial system is something that is owned and protected by the common good. So we've gone to war for it. I, I, don't, I don't defend us going to war for it in, in every circumstance, obviously. And that's a whole nother topic that I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm don't like war in general, but you know, people have been drafted in our history. And then also, if you look at, you know, what happened with Native Americans when we came here, if you look at, you know, the history of slavery and how we got, it's really hard with all of that context to think, oh, this money all belongs to me and I should be able to keep how much I want because I know the history of how, how this became the way it is. And I think the responsibility that's there is to do things like pay high taxes so that that money can go back to making some of those injustices, trying to right some of those wrongs. And I can't, we can't, look, we can't go back and change what you lived through as a kid right now. We can't. But what we can do is we can create, hopefully, a future where fewer people will, will be exposed to that because that is, that's heartbreaking that Dan, you went we through did, that. If we did an audit on your money last year, what percentage of your money was given to charity? Oh, I, I, I'm, I, I think charities like, uh, especially on the top end, is kind of a, a, a PR scam for billionaires. No, no, no. I'm not talking about billionaires. I'm talking about you specifically. I'm talking about like you. Oh. What portion did you give to charity, uh, or, or how much money did you contribute with time and money last year, 2020? Oh, I'm, I'm, not, I, I, I'm not. I, I don't want to sign up for an audit with you. I might, I mean, I might like do that if I thought about it. Question, but... The only reason I'm asking that question is because yeah. typically the people that impose being the most noble don't do a lot of it themselves. And, and that is a form of mm. judgment. And what I mean by judgment by that is let the other person sit there and make their own decisions. When you're talking about the money side, I fully agree. I didn't sit there and see all those events that happened where... Uh, great. I grew up in a family where my, my dad was a 99 cent store cashier. I don't know what it is to be. Well, I've never lived in a house. I've lived in an apartment, one bedroom. We don't have a clue what it is to have money growing up as a kid. So I understand what it is to be that person. Last part of this interview. Again, this is probably going to go down as my top 10 favorite interviews of all time. Talking to you. Sincerely. I want you to know this. Sincerely. One of the top that. 10. Uh, and, and the reason why, one, I applaud you that you agree to do this interview, kudos to you, salute to you for willing to do this, because a lot of people say no. And uh, secondly, to be able to willing to have that discourse. I think the audience won today. I think who won today is the audience that's sitting there saying, okay, this was great. Can we have more of this? And we're still laughing, enjoying each other's company, and we're probably going to get off and having a relationship together. Last part. Totally. Here. I'm going to give you a name. 
uh, tell me what comes to mind. And if you want to pass, just say pass. You don't have to say anything. But if I put a name out there, tell me the first word that comes to mind. Uh, Milton Friedman. Shareholder. Okay. Adam Smith. Uh, misunderstood. Karl Marx. Um, direction. Okay. Uh, Elon Musk. Sad. Your favorite, Peter Thiel. Anger. <laughs> <laughs> Bernie Sanders. Um, consistency. I agree. He is for decades. AOC. Um, future. Okay, Bill Gates. I'll pass. I, 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 there's a word, but I, it's going to take me like an hour to come up with what it is. Fair enough. Bezos. Um, the worst. Really? Okay. Biden. Please. Did you say please? Like pleasing everybody? Please. Okay. And last but not least. No, no, I didn't mean it that way. I meant I'm like saying please, bro. Oh, okay. I got it. Okay, please. <laughs> like, please. I got please. it. I got it. Biden, please. <laughs> and then last but not least, Donald Trump. Um, who? Okay, fair enough. Well, uh, 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 for the audience, if you've stayed with us the entire time, which I think many of you have because this was very interesting, the book, Worth It, is a book that our friend here, Dan Price, wrote, How a Million Dollar Pay Cut and a $70 Million Minimum Wage Revealed a Better Way of Doing Business. His book came out last year. You can go order it on Amazon. We're going to put the links below. And to get a hold of him, if you want to give him any feedback, if you cut any part that he made any assumptions or I did, let us know on Twitter. His handle, we're going to put up right next to him, and my handle is going to be right next to me. Send us a message and tell us, what you took away from this interview. Dan Price, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Pat. Really nice to be with you. You got it, buddy. So if you enjoyed today's interview, I want to hear your thoughts. There was a lot of different discourse, debate, philosophy. Some of you guys that follow him are probably here trashing this video. I want to hear it all. If you agree with me, disagree with me, agree with him, disagree with him, comment below. And if you enjoyed this interview, some tells me you're also going to enjoy my interview with professor, leading socialist professor, according to Forbes magazine, Richard Wolf, another one where we had a great time debating. Click over to watch that. With that being said, thanks for watching, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.